0: Have you ever dressed up like a Star Wars character?
1: Never. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway.
0: I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm an author, professor, historian, and I still get teary every time I hear the Skywalker theme. Who doesn't?
1: Mm -hmm. I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm a professor, biblical scholar, author, and if Jurassic Park ever becomes a real thing, leave me out.
0: Yikes. Today, we're talking about The People versus George Lucas, a funny, insightful, and sometimes bawdy look at the fan communities of Star Wars and their relationship to George Lucas, famed creator of the Star Wars universe. Along
1: the way, we talk about the idea of a canon, Star Wars wars as scripture and the notion of childhood join us join us Do you remember where you were and how old you were when you first saw Star Wars? The original Oh yeah.
0: Oh wait, the original, like episode four or episode. episode
1: one slash four. Episode I don't know one. what what do we call it? If we're not including the prequels, you An, would just call a it A New Hope? Yeah, the one where, you know, we meet Luke and he's with Oh his, yes, I do. Where, Absolutely. Where were you?
0: Um okay. I was at these people's house. It was on VHS. Oh. Um and
1: VHS, what a joy right there. I know.
0: Children, let us tell you what VHS was. The
1: rewinding?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was at um, this—we were having like a a church potluck, and Mm. um, these people that were at our church were hosting the potluck, and they had this massive TV. And back in the olden days, big screen TVs were like—they would take up a whole room. Mm -hmm. And one older kid— put in Star Wars and it was like all the other kids were running around playing and stuff but I'd never seen it before and mm. I was transfixed. Dang. How about you?
1: You know what's crazy? I was a I saw Star Wars for the first time much later in life.
0: Oh really? When I
1: was a kid my family didn't really watch movies.
0: Oh interesting. So how old were you?
1: Uh, oh I was definitely like I was in college when I first <gasps> saw Star Wars. Whoa. I saw in fact I saw the original Star Wars trilogy around a little bit before, but around the same time that the Lord of the Rings movies <gasps> came out,
0: Brian. Okay, now I've got a question for you because yeah. that's how old I was when I saw Top Gun, and I thought it was mm. a ridiculous movie. Mm. And my husband saw it when he was a child, and he was like, "This is movie magic. What's wrong with you?" Right so, there. Yeah, you have
1: the whole thing right really? there. Really? Okay. It's about childhood, right? Yeah. And the, and, and the effect that something has on you at very impressionable stages in your life. Like there's nothing objectively. I remember getting in a huge argument with somebody and I thought, I didn't realize how sensitive this would be, but I was saying because I'd seen Star Wars around the same time, it was, it was before, but like right. similar time to right. Lord of the Rings. I was like, oh, kids now who see the Lord of the Rings, they're not going to be able to watch the old Star Wars movies, classic though they are, right. lovely though right. they are. And they're not going to think the old Star Wars movies are better than Lord of the Rings type stuff for <sighs> fantasy kind of stuff. They're just not because- it just isn't that kind of thing. It just won't be seen that way. Just the quality of the filmmaking and the immersive world there. And I know Star Wars has that quality of right. that immersive world. It's just different. It's cued into a different time, a different era.
0: So it's, that's interesting to me. But you could appreciate that there was some magic
1: in the beginning? Oh, of course. No, it's, it's magic. And I've seen them a lot. I mean, my wife saw them like as a kid. We didn't, you know, the first movie I ever saw in a theater, I think I saw like... The original, I uh, quote unquote original Batman movie, the oh, one with
0: Michael Keaton. No, with
1: Michael Keaton, the one that oh, where yeah. he kind of goes against the Joker. Yeah. And I saw Jurassic Park when I was in sixth grade. <gasps> oh, yeah. I think me I was too. in sixth grade when Jurassic Park came out. That was the first movie I ever went to see, like with a friend, like in a theater kind of thing. Oh,
0: that's cool. But
1: that's those stand out to me in my mind because they were the only ones. It wasn't that my family was like a militant no movies right, kind right, of family. Right, right. Just, it just wasn't a thing that we did. And I don't remember why or what the reason was, but we just didn't do it.
0: Well, when I was a kid, we watched Just mostly, we watched movies at home because going to the movies is expensive, first of all. It was
1: expensive, right? So
0: I went, my dad actually took me on like a dad daughter date to Jurassic Park, which I loved. And I remember asking him, I was like, Dad, that was so good. What did you think of it? And he was like, Oh my gosh, that was terrible. I have enough stress in my life. <laughs> I was like, I was like, that stands out in my mind as such a dad
1: response. I have enough stress in my life without dinosaurs. Yeah.
0: So, um, <laughs> do you have a plan for like how you're going to introduce Star Wars to your children?
1: It's an important conversation. How yeah. and when are you going to introduce your kids? How are you going to talk to your kids about Star Wars? Because
0: really? I, I have a plan.
1: I, I already have. I mean, the the older one, we've seen a lot of the movies. We've even seen some of the new, new ones that have mm-hmm, come out. Mm-hmm. I've tried to shield her from the prequels. Like, good. we tried to pretend yes. that they don't exist, but... Because you're a good father. Because I'm a good father. But you know what? They've seen Jar Jar Banks clips, and they know. And they like it.
0: Okay. They love
1: the whole thing. Like, they don't care.
0: I know. It's, it's painful. It's like, I want to have a kids these days moment, but I know that this is just part of, like, how children receive information. So, my it son is. is only three. And so, obviously, he has not seen Star Wars because it's just too old for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but here's the crazy thing. Mm-hmm. He has two things. One is he has a Star Wars sweatshirt. That has BB-8 from the new, you know. BB-8. And he, I don't know how he knows this, but he knows that it's a Star Wars sweatshirt, and he knows that he loves it, and it is his favorite item of clothing. He's never seen anything. He has no idea. Yeah. But he just knows. The other thing was, I turned on the Star Wars anthem, Mm. and he just, like, looked at me, and his eyes got huge, and he got a huge smile on his face, and he started running around in circles With a sheet on his back Like yes
1: Wow Like he just
0: knew Like this is the response That you ought to have Is it genetics I'm not sure It's like
1: neurological myth (laughs) Yeah Like down at that level (laughs) No, my daughter loves it. She has posters in her room. She just knows. It's just like a thing. I think now it's becomes, there are toys and there's so much merchandise out there. Right. That it's just something that everyone, every kid has to just know that they love. It just shows what a brilliant product it is in terms of it, at every level.
0: You know, I mean, part of the brilliance of um, Star Wars, and I, I have a question for you about this. Because, uh, so I, when I teach church history classes, one of the big, issues is, like, how is the Bible formed over time, right? right a lot right. of students think it was, like, you know, dropped by a stork from God, you know, without mm-hmm. any mm-hmm. any human messiness. A stork,
1: I like yeah. that. I use the l- lowered on golden tablets. Oh, interesting. Idea, which there is, of course, Mormon Mormons have an idea that's about a right, scripture that's being on right. yeah. golden tablets, so at least it has a tie into that revelation.
0: I Okay, it depends on the age of my students. With seminary students, I will use the stork metaphor because you can talk <laughs> about the difference between stork and sex. And mm-hmm. one of them is a lot more... More human and like a lot messier and stuff, and then one of them is just mythical, like that didn't happen. Right. So they have this idea that it comes from nowhere, but I use Star Wars, mm-hmm. you know, as a um, example of canon. And mm-hmm. so with the older students in particular, this works really well because they're mm-hmm. like, we hate episodes one, two, three. But how do you? I mean, what do you think of that? How have you used like this idea in your own teaching, or do you use it? Oh yeah. What are your thoughts? What
1: a brilliant intro to our. Documentary for today. Oh
0: yeah, let's talk about our documentary,
1: the People versus No. It's perfect. Just let me do the transition. I got. Oh, I got this. So I, I had this. Yep. I have this. You did. The People versus George Lucas documentary that came out uh, a little bit after the prequels came out, but it's basically about the way that Star Wars fandom has just taken on the Star Wars story as. The most integral part of its morality, morality, storytelling, worldview, (laughs) life, yeah, and just and made fan fan fiction, fan movies about it, comics, toys, everything, and the way that they've been engaged in this life or death struggle with George Lucas, its creator, around issues of who gets to really own what the story is. If an author creates something, is it that off? Does the author own it? Right. Does the author have a right then, a creator of any piece of art? To even go back and like change the original? Like, what about like what if Leonardo da Vinci came back to life through a time machine, and this was used in the yeah, documentary, yeah, yeah. went into the Louvre and demanded to like repaint and retouch parts the of Mona the Mona Lisa? Lisa. <laughs> Would we not tell him, no, sir, this has existed now for hundreds of years and this is ours now too? Yeah. Or is it the case that no, if it's it, it, is an uh, is an author's work that author's own product? And so this kind of contest. Just was like gasoline on a wildfire when the prequels were made because people felt like George Lucas was ruining their childhoods yeah. by ruining. But was he really ruining? Yet were these prequels really like quote objectively worse than the original ones, or was it just as we as we had discussed the time of the viewing and the magic it creates in your life?
0: It's really interesting because it ends up being I. It, I we love this movie. People well I love it. People versus George Lucas because it's about a lot of different things at once. I mean it's about the disillusionment of the fans, but then it's also about commercialism and art and yes. all the and I think it's also about like childhood. You know, totally. like, what does it mean to be, like, and how do you receive information as a child versus an adult? Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think, I want to bring it back to our, the question about the Bible yes, yes. canon because I know that, like, so I was a child and I, uh, and as a child, my parents just encouraged me to read the Bible, didn't mm-hmm. put any filter or give any explanation. So, as soon as I could mm. read, I was reading it. Wow. That has given me a different perspective on the Bible than students who may not have read much of it and mm-hmm. then are taught like mm-hmm. historically critically about it. Almost like you, know?
1: almost like you get like the, um, well, in a way you could say, it's like for some people with the Bible, it's almost like you get the fan fiction and all the story around it in the fandom before you even see the films. Yeah. Almost like your son running around with the cape and hearing the music and he's like falling in love with these characters, but he doesn't actually- He has actually,
0: no idea. Yes,
1: yeah. has, has had no experience. Okay, so the way that this fandom, now to go to the yeah, question- Yeah, yeah, yeah the way that this fandom has reacted and and the kind of issues, I should say that the problems and the issues that this controversy has raised about who own, who really owns Star Wars as a cultural product, as memory and all that, just had amazing parallels in the idea of the development, the writing, the development, and the dissemination of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. That I thought we're just like, and it's like many layers too. It's not just one thing. So you got to be prepared for a little ride here of like <laughs> six or seven layers of things here that, that, that this evokes. Okay. So number one, okay, it's this issue of, like, take the Bible. What is the actual Bible? Like, where is it? Like, if you right. went back to an if you went back to antiquity, say you went back to the year, I don't know, five A.D. or something like that, or mm-hmm. or one hundred B.C. Like, um, and you said, "Hey, excuse me," and you go to Israel and you are like, "Hey, I'd like a copy of the Bible." Yeah, you can't get it. <laughs> there is actually no Bible. What you have are scrolls. You have traditions and stories of which there is no single instantiation, which is actually the thing nor definitely for any one book, nor do you have the entire thing put together. And there's a debate among scholars about when the Bible actually becomes a canon or the word canon coming from the word for a measuring reed or a measuring stick, like a list of authoritative books. When did that list become authoritative for what we now call the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament? And then when did the New Testament become canon? We know more. We know at least by the year, I think 364 AD in Athanasius's festal letter, that that's the first complete official list of a Christian canon that we have. But it's shocking to know that it's that late.
0: Well, and also, I mean, there were people like as late as Martin Luther who were arguing that certain books shouldn't be included. So a lot of people, I think it's a popular vision of the Bible from American Mm -hmm. fundamentalism um, and probably some evangelical circles too. The idea that the Bible as a thing was this unified, I mean, I— Sometimes I like to call it with my students, the scriptures, you know, Mm because it's sort of like this morphing thing. Right. And of course, I mean, you know this better than I do, but biblical scholars and religious scholars will talk about a canon within a canon. So there's like the canon that we have, and then there are the books that everybody emphasizes. So like if you're Pentecostal, you love Revelation. Right. If you're mainline, you tend to like Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. You know, if Mm -hmm. you're evangelical, you might like the cross scene.
1: Right. The last kind of upper level course I taught in biblical studies, we really, this was this became like the central issue, what in German is called Zosch critique, yeah. content critique. Like the idea that you would have, like Luther had a kind of a, a razor to cut, yeah. like this idea for Luther, it was that which testifies to Christ. So you can use that to then critique other parts of the Bible and its content on the basis of your thing. So he could look at, say, the gospel, uh, uh, not the gospel, the the book of James, as he did, and say, it is it is a right. gospel of straw. Those were fighting words in the 16th century. <laughs> I,
0: you know what? Luther was so good at fighting words. Yeah, but. he was good
1: at fighting words. And so, so this idea of like, okay, but it, it opens this huge can of worms, to use a cliche, just about like, how far does that critique against the text go with your standard that you have, right? And so... Okay, so yes, like all of this. So there's this issue of canon. Then there's this issue of, and like who gets to say what's in the canon or who gets to use which part of the canon to critique another part. There's this issue of the manuscripts and just textual criticism or trying to discern as best as you can. Oh yeah. What's the original text that the author wrote? And by the way, if you discovered a a scrap of papyrus and you thought maybe it was the original, how would you even know?
0: Yeah, so a listener- You can't know. Yeah, there's a little section in this documentary where they talk about the auteur theory, mm-hmm. which is the idea that the director of a film, I think it's the idea that the director of a film is the one who is like responsible for its artistic right. vision. Right. So, that is it's actually I'm sort of surprised that that's a like apparently a kind of standard theory in film criticism because there's so many other factors that play into it like totally. setting and script and totally. actors and editors yeah. i've heard editors are really important so anyway but they seem to that seems to be everyone's baseline mm-hmm. right they're like george lucas gave us this right we love george lucas Now we're mad at him, and I'll—I mean, I'm one of those people, by the way. I—I'm like—I'm like like probably not the—I'm definitely not a super fan as some of the people on the film, but I saw it as a child, and I—they had there's like a whole series of Star Wars novels generously titled i read those as a kid like i'm i'm like i was immersed you were one of the
1: popular kids in high school reading those
0: (laughs) you know what i knew enough back then this is let you know this is before geeks took over the world that i I knew to hide that but anyway (laughs) uh, i read all that stuff and i did feel that he had ruined something for me
1: yeah that's right um okay another layer to this what about translation i mean when when you translate something from one language to another you're, you're also, you're changing it in a way you're all, you have to change it. I love this phrase too. I always sort of gently chide students about the phrase, a literal translation. People oh, right, who are right. biblical purists want a quote literal translation. I think that's like a, it's an oxymoron. It's saying like a cold fire or something like literal. The word <laughs> literal means by the letters. So if you were to make a, tra- like you can't have a translation that's by the letters. If you were to do a literal translation, you'd just be copying it out in Hebrew or Greek
0: What's or the, in its original
1: form. You could have more wooden translations that follow in a certain way. And that's what people mean. But, yeah,
0: like the NASB yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of but the you're, right. NRSV or whatever. Right,
1: exactly. But you're changing it. You're, ch- you're you're changing it and you're making a new work. by tra- a, a, All translations are an interpretation and a transformation right. of a text. And so that's just like part of the process.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you see
1: that. You also see, I'll whip through the others. these others quickly. You also have this genre already cropping up in early Judaism in the in the third century, second century, first century BC of what we might call rewritten Bible, very broadly. Authors like the book of Jubilees, for example, which was very important for early Jewish audiences, didn't make it into the quote unquote canon, but the Dead Sea Scroll community, for example, had a, had copies of Jubilees, more than of most biblical books, by the way, which became biblical books. And Jubilees is part of this genre. They like rewrote the book of Genesis, but with interpretations built into the story. Yeah, and so people were doing this with texts already. There was like Genesis fan fiction already in like 200 BC.
0: Well, the interesting thing is, is people have just continued to do that because. So the I think you brought up the Latter Day Saints. That's mm-hmm. a famous example. In fact, when I was a kid, I re, uh, like in high school, I remember talking with my friend who is was raised LDS, yeah, or Latter Day Saint, and uh, we were talking about Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which mm-hmm. is an awesome. Andrew Weber musical. But anyway, I was like, oh yeah, and then this happens in the story. And she said, no, 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 this happens. And mm-hmm. that is how I discovered that yeah. Joseph Smith had not only written the Book of Mormon, but he had re- rewritten huge parts of the Old Testament. And that was... Like, that; those are a part of, like, right. LDS circles, their sacred scriptures, but people are continuing to do it today. I mean, like, there are lots of versions of, you know, we've done—I think we did an episode where we looked at all these, like, high school Bibles or, you know, oh, women's yeah, study yeah, Bibles yeah, 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 or, yeah, those, that yeah. changes the meaning.
1: Oh, totally. I was That was another one of my layers was this Ooh, idea oops. of, like— but, No, that's great. It's, you've said it. The Transition. idea of, like— but people that have study Bibles, like the Joyce Meyer Study Bible, where it's like the Bible, or there's like the the uh, uh, the Lee Strobel Case for Christ Study Bible, Bible, yeah, where it's like you've got it, you've got a um, a contemporary person who's like putting their thoughts and their thing in the on the page as the text itself, right? And so yeah. it's like you're getting multiple, you know, I think there's a lot of thoughtlessness about. You know, there's there's a lot of like wild kind of rabid critiques of like, oh, you know, for instance, take a lot of Christians who w- would have been upset or don't like a lot of Bible movies. There's a lot of hate toward this genre, like the Noah movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of, especially conservative Christians, like hate those kind of movies because they change the text, but it's like okay, yeah, you know, whatever, whoever person's Christian celebrity commentary Bible, they might not like literally change the words, but they're putting their words on the page with the Bible's words. You
0: know, what's really interesting about that is that it runs so counter, so the explicit message is sola scriptura, right? Like only the Bible, you don't need any help, priesthood of all believers, which is actually kind of a misunderstanding of what Luther intended, and yet we all seem to intuit this idea that we need help reading the Bible. Because the reality is, and I love the Bible, but the reality reality of it is, is you can't understand everything that you're reading without help. You know, without like thinking about history or thinking about the genre that it's in, or you know, just the
1: translation itself. I mean,
0: absolutely. I. As I understand it, I don't read Hebrew. I read a little bit of Greek, but Hebrew is a very mysterious and flexible language and who knows what it means sometimes, Who right? knows?
1: It can mean anything. Let me ask you about this. Cause yeah. This was, is this was a major thing that the documentary really raised about the, these fandom cultures <laughs> and the way that they deal with their scriptures, let's say. Yeah. Um, is this idea of a participatory culture. You have the toys, you have the cosplay, you this whole, you know, the the group almost becomes like a kind of congregation in this church, you know, to the, George Lucas is the preacher and they're at the church and, and they make, they even, they make fan films and they're even fan films that are subversive, but there was something toward the end that I wanted to ask you about with relation to contemporary communities of faith, for example. And this idea that one of the, one of the characters in the documentary says toward the end that culture is just going to become more and more participatory, And, and I, you know, and he's talking obviously about the way that fans interact with films, but I thought what implications does that have for church? This idea that people just want to become, they don't just want to sit in the pew, right? And hear a message. Don't want to sit in the theater seat and watch a film. They want to like become the film and do that. Like, does that have implications? Is that a thing that kind of leaps the divide into faith communities? This idea of a need for participatory
0: really like that idea because you know you and i went to comic-con and then we went to the ufo festival oh yeah so we've seen like two pretty intense fan communities (laughs) up close and in personal or in person and um i actually think that this might be at least in kind of traditional protestant circles this might be an untapped resource Mm. because if you go to a Catholic mass or a um, Orthodox service, you will see there's a lot of participation that happens, right? Everybody stand, everybody sit, you know, like, Mm -hmm. here's the, well, what do they say? Smells and bells, right? Like lots of different stuff going on. It's very tactile. And for a long time in at least American Protestantism, there's this idea that, The shorthand of it is church has become theater, right? The pastor is an entertainer, and then everybody else sort of consumes the entertainment. And the idea of entering into the world of the text, even if it's in some ways that might seem a little strange to people, I actually think is a great idea. Because you, you know, we we have a a colleague who participates in something and now I'm going to forget what it's called, but it's basically like you reenact history as a form of teaching. Oh, yeah, yeah, What's it yeah, yeah. called? I can't remember. I can't
1: remember. But Sorry, it's, Paul Otto. But it's like reenacting history in the classroom. Yeah. Instead of just lecturing, you like actually act out, you do like a creative improv drama or, or a scripted drama with the characters themselves.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I've done in the classroom. Very participatory. Yeah, and it's fun. Like yeah. I'll, I'll assign, you know, like Reformation era art, theological arguments. Mm-hmm. And the more time that you give students to prep for it, the more seriously they'll take it and they get into it and I actually think it's a great idea because you learn the emotional logic of a theological position as well as like the doctrine, you know, because we kind of get this idea in our head that we need to know this, this, and this, but like if you know this, this, and this about Luke and Leia and Han, but like, how much better is it if you are dressed up like if you know you are
1: literally reenacting, you're
0: embodying them? Yeah. yeah, and
1: I and I think too, even for for smells and bells type church traditions like Catholics and Orthodox, the challenge is still there. Like, obviously sure, there sure. there are a lot of. I mean, one of the one of the stories of. The you know the recent few decades of Catholicism in the United States is a mass exodus of people from Catholicism right. into more evangelical forms because precisely they did not find those forms of worship to actually be participatory right. for them. Right, found it maybe in a setting that didn't provide it any more clearly than before, but nevertheless, okay. Um, about the about do, doing the thing though, wasn't it hilarious to see that the the group in the documentary that redid the Indiana Jones movie? Oh my god! Scene for scene, punch for punch, shot for shot. That's a work of love. I thought
0: that my heart was going to explode because (laughs) they were so sweet. They're like, I don't know, teenagers when they start it, young adults when they finish it. Uh, And it's like the kind of dedication that you only hope for in your students, you know, like the the pure love. What I loved about these fans, okay, I was writing in my notes and I wrote hyperbole because these, okay, these are the uh, metaphors that they use uh, to talk about like, what what they feel that George Lucas did to the Star Wars franchise and mm-hmm. kind of this contest between the fans and George Lucas they compare it to holocaust deniers
1: Uh, They did at one point, Holocaust Denying. (laughs) That's the biggest moral tragedy of human history, arguably.
0: Yeah. So, And also Star Wars, apparently. And also Star Wars. And then abuse victims.
1: There was a lot of abuse. Like, we keep going back to the abuser kind of thing, even (laughs) though we hate the movies. They were the abuse victims. They were the abuse victims, so.
0: (laughs) And then sex. Lots of different ideas about that, like ecstasy and, you know.
1: Or violation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Gratification. There are all sorts of, I was just like, wow, you guys, you feel deeply about this I mean I love Star Wars but that is not where I'd go like the holocaust you know
1: we were chatting before we began recording like do, do you feel that way about any movie or thing it was kind of like well maybe not I don't want to put myself I out I wouldn't yeah. want to attach. I just would not feel comfortable in any way attaching myself to that level I mean there were characters I was writing down quotes from the beginning not characters but speakers I guess in the, doc- yeah. in the documentary at the beginning who said it, like a guy was screaming it's not just a film he screamed oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. or another person says it's the most important thing in the world to me another person in the documentary he said star wars is like air without it i would literally die
0: okay you know what my favorite version of that was was yeah. the guy who i'm not i'm going to mess it up but he was playing the piano and it was basically like a song and the structure of the song was Insult, insult, insult—like very profane insults that we can't say on our mm-hmm. podcast because we're not an explicit podcast. We keep it insult, clean. insult, insult, and then the chorus was just "Jar Jar Binks, Jar <laughs> Jar Binks," and then it was like "Insult, insult, insult." You're like a oh, bleep, that. oh yeah, 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 bleep, yeah. Bleep, Jar Jar Binks. Oh, yeah, that guy was funny. Yeah, man, he was mad.
1: Another person said, "Quote: My entire moral universe has been cre- was created by Star Wars." Oh, oh man.
0: Quote. I mean, I think
1: for a lot of listeners, I, granted, and even probably a lot of people who would listen to a podcast like this, understand fan culture, understand fandom, but a question. Maybe some listeners would want to ask, and maybe we should just put out there. I'm asking you to answer mm, this question. Mm-hmm. Is, this, is this a form of just like depraved behavior on the part of these fans? Like, do they, if you're saying Star Wars is literally your entire moral universe and the most important thing in the world to me, is there something like actually psychologically wrong with you? <laughs> like, is this is this okay? Oh like to to, to have that kind of like connection to something or is it just like no everyone people this is a search for meaning people have to have a connection to something the fact that they find it in this film Oh,
0: like is it harmless could it do yeah
1: or just like yeah or is is it just like crazy like would you want this for your children to have like this kind of like would you what what if your child grew up and at age of 17 said my entire moral universe has been formed by star wars only
0: yeah, well, I mean I that would be kind of a I'm fail, not, right? Like, if I, I hope that I'm not going to be a lecturing parent, but that might be time at that point to be like, <laughs> listen. <laughs> we we need to have a talk. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know. It's so hard to say. I mean, I guess one of the the themes that keeps coming up throughout is this idea of that the that that the fans are fans because they Star Wars tapped into some childlike part of themselves and right. that the best version of star wars is the version that taps into the children in fact they make this point when they're talking about the character that is universally despised by people my age mm-hmm. jar jar binks right, right and there's been a lot of like criticism in regards to like the way that he it, it like a cartoonish version um, that has been called racist and right. there's all kinds of stuff and then they interview all these kids who are like, I love Jar Jar Binks. I love it. And there's a really interesting episode of How I Met Your Mother where they talk about, um, you can tell how old someone is like to date. It's a really funny subplot. Based on whether or not they think that the Ewoks are this t- terrible form of like, over-commercialization or if they're really cute and you love them. Right. And so there's just this whole conversation about that. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's not what I would want for my children. Is this what you would want for yours?
1: No, no. It seems I mean, I I, I think more and more, even since we've started doing this podcast and done things like gone to Comic Con last yeah. fall, hopefully we can go again this fall. And yes. just I, I think I understand the world of fandom more and more. I just didn't grow up in a culture like that or around people who did that. I was not reading the Star Wars yeah. books as a high schooler. I would have if I would have known about them probably. I just I just wasn't exposed to this kind of stuff. So I still look at this kind of stuff with a little bit of detachment, kind of like wow, like, I would not want that on my gravestone, you know, like, exactly. Yeah,
0: well, here's one of the the things that I thought was kind of beautiful about it. I mean, they they interview lots of different types of people. Some of them are people where you're just like, whoa, dude, and they're like 99% of them are dudes. Like, right. you know, you need to— It's a, it's a,
1: a highly male universe. Yeah,
0: so. there were a number of points where I was like, eh, this is a mm-hmm. bunch of dudes. But there were a few women in there. But anyhow, so there's a point where you're kind of like, yeah, you know, I think you should— get a broader range of interest. But then there was this whole other subclass Mm -hmm. of fans who they themselves have become like really generative artists, right? Mm -hmm. So they're comic book writers, they're screenwriters, they're novelists. And I actually was really inspired by that because I thought, Okay, here's, like, George Lucas is over here becoming, you know, they they talk a lot about how, like, he saw himself as an artist and kind of, like, a victimized artist. Like, everyone's picking right, on me, even right. though he's, like, one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. But um, then he's also this businessman. But I'm like, even if you say, oh, gosh, you know, he's a hippie who sold out to and became the man. You have to give him credit for inspiring an entire generation of artists. That was neat. I thought
1: that was really cool. Totally, totally. And, And I think the film does come around to kind of like even the people who were hating, they did kind of come around to saying... Yeah, he was a genius. I uh-huh. guess in some ways, I mean, I'm I'm very intrigued by this notion of just childhood and what yeah. childhood is like. Like think of Plato's Republic. There's all this like censorship of literature and this ideal society that the characters there in the Republic are are inventing, sort of in their words. But one thing they do is they censor the materials because you don't want kids being influenced by bad stories. And so yeah. this thought that like what my daughters and what I saw even as as children that that becomes determinative for your life puts a lot of emphasis on Childhood and on, like what the young mind is exposed to and, and how often.
0: Well, it's really interesting too because one of the they talk about that George Lucas. Um, he was unhappy with the film that he made right before that American Graffiti, which deals with like mm. American teenager life, right. and it's actually really interesting. But um, one of the things that I thought when when they were talking about that in the child, the the young adulthood kind of like coming of age category of people that just love these films so much mm-hmm. is how how. American adolescence hadn't actually existed for very long by mm-hmm. the time this came along. So yeah. most people say, you know, like it's mid to late 20th century after the second world war, you get this thing called youth culture. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden these youth culture people become really powerful purchasers, mm-hmm. you know. So in some ways, George Lucas was in uncharted territory. Like there's this opportunity that maybe other people hadn't tapped into yet. right? And so in some ways it's like he's their first true love.
1: Yeah, their first true love and an amazing story about how time and place and culture and economics all just like come together in a way that nobody could have ever predicted. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos.
0: We love all our weirdos near and far.
1: For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com.
0: And join our social media conversations about religion and pop culture on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Weird Religion.
1: And we're YouTubing now, so find us on YouTube. YouTube us. (laughs)
0: No. <laughs> These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Luke DiLorenzo and executive produced by Troy Wellstad.
1: Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A
0: special shout out to Portland Seminary for sponsoring the season and to Trigger the Studio Dog.
1: When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye.